Open your Bibles to John chapter 16. John 16. They are walking through the garden at this point, late in the evening, knowing that in a few hours, the Lord Jesus Christ will be crucified. And as they continue to walk through the garden in John chapter 16, the last night before our Savior is killed, Jesus tells them about his death and resurrection, but he does so in words that are guarded. That is, in the revelation that we see, he only shows the part he wants to show, reminding us again that he is God And he knows what is best to tell us. Look in verse 16. He'll say right there. In a little while, you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. What he means there is, in just a few hours, I'm going to die. And then, in three days, you'll see me again. But the problem is, the disciples didn't know those details. And so in verses 17 and 18, the disciples repeat what he said. Now, how could this happen? Well, it's very simple. They were all walking. They left the upper room. In chapters 13 and 14, they were in a second-story building in a large room that would hold 13 men. While they were in that building, they reclined on couches around a large oval table. At that time, they ate dinner, and Jesus taught them. Then Jesus got up and washed their feet, and then he had the first of the Lord's tables, that is, the bread and the juice representing his body and his blood. Now, the book of Luke tells us that at that time, they began to fight, saying, who's the greatest? So apparently there was a long conversation and now they begin to fight and they're, who's the greatest? Well, I'm going to sit by him. And then in chapter 14, verse 31, it says, Jesus told them it's time to leave here. They get up and they leave. Chapter 15 and chapter 16 happen while they're walking. It, it was the peripatetic way of teaching. That's a Greek word which means walking around. Peripatetic means a teacher who walked around while he taught. It was common in the ancient Greeks. And Jesus did that while he walked. He's walking the few kilometers to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's now late in the evening, perhaps 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. And as he walks, and the disciples are behind him, he's telling them different things. He says, for example, in John chapter 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. Look right here. Do you see this vine growing in the garden? That's what I'm like. Do you see the fruit coming off of it? That's what you need to have. I'll know that you're a Christian when I see that fruit. That's the way he talks. And in John chapter 15, he tells them up front, if you have fruit, then I'll know you're my disciple, but be prepared because it's going to be difficult to have fruit. Can anyone remember what was the reason why Jesus said it would be difficult to have fruit in John chapter 15? It's at the end, starts in verse 18. Carson? Well done, because the world actually hates you. You're going to find it difficult. It's not so simple just to bear fruit, because what you're going to find is there's a large group of people that want to stop you. 
Like trying to grow fruit and then the monkeys keep eating it. What you're going to find is every time you take a step in the right direction, there's something trying to stop you. It's playing rugby, but there's actually another team against you. You had thought you'd be playing rugby without the other team. It'd be pretty easy to score if that was the case, right? But actually, you're running in a race and there's all these opponents who are trying to beat you. You're boxing and there's another guy with gloves on as well. That's chapter 15. He goes on in chapter 16 and tells you the nature of this persecution. In chapter 16, verses 1 to 4, what's he going to tell them? People are actually going to kick you out of the culturally accepted places, the synagogues. They're going to get angry with you at weddings and funerals because you just don't do things the way they do them. There's going to be cultural tension. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt trying to live like a Christian and then your mother, father, uncle, brother, sister, child presses you, your friends, your coworkers? Why are you doing that? And you're thinking, I'm doing this because I'm trying to be a believer. But then they press you and you feel torn and something in you feels, well, maybe I should just give in. And something in you feels, I think I'm doing right. I should stand firm. But isn't it hard to stand firm? That's chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. And it goes on and says, they'll even kill you. And while they're killing you, they're going to think that they are serving who? God. They're going to think while they're killing you that they're serving God. We talked at that time about hard persecution and soft persecution. Hard persecution is when they say, I'm going to kill you if you don't deny Jesus. They put a gun or they throw you in prison and say, I'll kill you if you worship Jesus. That's what we called hard persecution. Soft persecution is when subtly with words, with ostracism, with cutting you off, with not wanting to return your calls, with mocking you. They continue. What's more difficult, soft persecution for 50 years or hard persecution for an hour? That's what we studied in John chapter 16. But then there's some way that we're going to get help. What's the help that we can find when we've got, we want to bear fruit, We want to be true Christians. We want to abide in the vine. We want to be united to Christ. But it's so hard because the world is against us. And our own hearts are against us. And they're killing us and cutting us off. What was the help that was offered? Tell me, what was the help that's offered? Kulani. Well done. We had five messages on the Holy Spirit because Jesus tells you when you are terrified and when you think, I just can't do this. I can't even pick up the basket of fruit. Nonetheless, fill it. What can I do? How can I overcome this? There's an army of monkeys eating my narches. How am I supposed to get any narches to sell when the monkeys are coming day and night? Oh, answer, I've got a helper for you. Right? That was your point to say amen. There's actually a helper. So if you look at this and say, I can't do it, you're exactly right. You at least understood something. You can't do it. You're very weak. But he's got a helper who makes you strong. That was five sermons worth, five five discussions from verses 7 down to verse 15. Now, they're still walking. And as they walk through, Jesus says, it's now time. 
I'm nearly at the place where I'm going to fall on my face and pray. It's only a few moments before I say goodbye to Matthew and Bartholomew. It's only a few moments before Simon doesn't see me anymore. Because you'll remember, he's going to get to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to leave eight of them. Three of them will go further with him. And then he's going to leave them and go a little bit out of sight. We know it's out of sight because they're going to fall asleep. He's going to go away. And then he's not going to see them because they're all going to run as soon as they see the soldiers. He's just moments away. And so he prepares them. And he prepares them with a basic principle. Now, you and I don't like to be prepared with basic principles. We like to be prepared with detailed plans. You tell me exactly what to do here, then what to do here. Show me the YouTube video step by step where I know, okay, first I do this, then I do that. Don't say basic principle, you need to fix the problem. Show me step by step how to fix it. And Jesus does not do that. He tells them broadly, you're not going to see me. And then you will see me. What? Remember, he's walking. He's the leader. They're behind him. What's he talking about? What could this mean? He's going. He's coming. He's going. He's... What is he talking about? This is, this is so... They don't want to say frustrating because that will put the blame on their master. But they feel it in their hearts. Have you ever felt that way with God or the Bible? Have you ever thought, I wish there was more. I, I wish there would just be two more chapters to the book of Galatians. I wish there was just a little more to Revelation. Couldn't you just have explained chapter 13 a little more? That's what happens right here. Now, they're debating what's happening, but they don't have the courage to ask who. They don't ask Jesus. They talk amongst themselves. Isn't that like us? When we could go to the one who knows, we debate amongst ourselves. Like Denethor, the king, in Tolkien's wonderful book, The Lord of the Rings. When he's interviewing Gandalf, the great, who has all the wisdom, and the little Pippin. Denethor looks at Pippin, even though Gandalf has all the wisdom. Gandalf could have set him straight. In fact, Gandalf could have saved Denethor so he didn't die. But instead, Denethor foolishly says, let me get everything I can from the little one. When he could have had all the wisdom if he had just asked. Isn't that like us? We have the chance to go straight to the source, to the fountain of all wisdom, but instead we bicker. But, well, do you know? And we ask among ourselves. Now, our Lord Jesus is going to explain from verse 20, 21, and 22. You see, the first four verses, verses 17, 18, 19, 16, 17, 18, and 19, those first four verses are just setting the stage. So at this point, I would like to begin the message. And the message is this. What do we do with a Christian's tears? Or in short, a believer's tears. Or in a sentence, believers will weep and cry and grieve, but only for a time. That's, that's the whole message because that's the point of this passage. So now... In verses 20, 21, and 22, with that as an introduction, I would like to explain to you, 
first of all, that believers will weep. Secondly, that it will be great weeping. It's not mild. But thirdly, it's temporary. So number one, it's certain. Number two, it's intense. Number three, it's temporary. And that comes right from verses 20. Verse 20 is, it's certain. Verse 21 is, it's intense. Verse 22 is, it's temporary. So with that as a background, with that as the introduction now, let's look and see exactly what our Lord Jesus said. Three truths about a believer's tears. Three truths about the hard life that you're going to go through. First of all, suffering is certain. Look at verse 20, chapter 16, verse 20. Truly, truly, don't doubt this. Certainly, certainly. Amen, amen. Amen, Jesus says. Whatever you've been wondering about, this is rock solid. You cannot doubt this truth. You know the phrase, truly, truly, or verily, verily, in the old King James. Jesus used it commonly when he was preaching, but the last night, he does not use it commonly, but he uses it here. I don't want you to think for a minute that you'll get through life without crying. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will what? Tell me the word. Tell me the word, everyone. You will what? Weep. And then again, he says it, and you will also mourn or lament or cry or grieve, depending on your translation. There are two verbs in the future. Do you see that in verse 20? If you have a pen, you want to underline those. We're going to, kids, did any children find the two repeated words? You're not a child. You're not a child, you're too big. Did anyone find the repeated words? What word was repeated? Give me one of them. Sorrowful, pain, grief, suffering. That's found seven times. It's right here in verse 20. You will weep. That's the repeated idea. You will mourn or lament or cry. You will groan. You will have sorrow. That is a prophecy from Jesus Christ himself. The church, I'm sorry, the quote church that tells you you will not weep or you will not suffer is contradicting Jesus Christ, the head of the church. He promises you will weep. This is not the only time. It's constant throughout the Bible. Job 1 verse 21. The Lord gives and it is the Lord who does what? The father or one of the fathers of these false groups that call themselves churches. The prosperity religion which is no Christianity. It does not deserve to be called the prosperity gospel or the uh, prosperity churches. We should rather call it the prosperity religion. Benny Hinn, one of the fathers of this false religion, which is no more Christian than Islam. Benny Hinn said, commenting on Job 121, which says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Benny Hinn says, Job was wrong. The Lord gives and never takes away. You can find it on YouTube or on the internet very easily. You can hear him saying it with his own mouth. Now the Bible records Job in full faith and confidence. The beauty of the book of Job is Job's confidence in God. And this false religion says, no, no, no. 
take that away. Pain and sickness never comes from Jesus. They've forgotten Acts 2 verse 23. Jesus Christ was delivered up by the predestined plan of God. It is not wrong based on Acts 2 verse 23 to say that at least in one sense, God was behind the death of Christ. The greatest tragedy, the greatest suffering in the history of all the world, God was behind it. It happens again in Isaiah 53, verse 10. You know that famous passage, don't you? In verse 10 it says, It pleased the Lord Jehovah to crush him. It pleased Jehovah to crush the servant. No, 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 no. Let's not fall into the trap of saying, We won't suffer. If we're just good Christians, we won't have pain. Let's know up front that our Lord prophesies. If you're confused about what I'm saying, Jesus says, let me make it very clear. You will truly, truly, certainly, certainly say amen to this, he says. You will certainly weep. First point, first sub point under this. Believers will weep. Number one, it's certain. Death follows from sin the way rivers flow to the seas. It can't be undone. James 1, verse 15. James 1, 15. We're reading that verse, that book this month. Sin, when it is finished, brings what? Death. It was God who allowed sin to enter the world. When Jehovah, sitting on high, when the Father, Son, and Spirit looked down on their newly created earth and they saw the most powerful of all the spirits come and fill a snake... And as the snake drew near to the, to the beautiful woman that was created by God, and suddenly it had the miraculous ability to speak, and as that snake spoke to the woman, did Jehovah, King of kings and Lord of lords, the Almighty, the Ancient of days, who holds all things in His hand and by whom all things consist, did He or did He not have power to step on the snake right then? Did he or did he not have the power to fill his son with a human body and give him a flaming sword to fly from heaven down to earth and to cut off the serpent's head and end the story right there in Genesis 3 verse 2? He had that power. And he allowed the snake to go on. Whatever you believe about the Bible, you must believe He had the power to cut off the snake's head. And he said, for good purposes, I control. And I'm going to allow sin to come. And when sin came, so did every rape. So did every death. So did the miscarriage that has so wrecked havoc on your soul. COVID. All there in Genesis 3-2 when the snake came. War Famine, the war to end all war, World War I, World War II to claim more lives than any other war in the history of the world. Even the final war prophesied in the book of Revelation, the war of Armageddon. All of those wars and all of the dead bodies and what we read in Psalm 110, he will fill up the valley with corpses. All of those deaths were captured in seed form when God said, no, 
No, let the snake go. Angels, you will not fly down and destroy Satan. You could. I could unleash the angels and they could all go down. We know that angels could easily have stopped Satan because in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, an angel will come down from heaven having a key of the bottomless pit and he will take Satan, tie him with a chain, bind him and throw him in the bottomless pit. If an angel could do that in Revelation 20, I'm quite confident an angel could have done that in Genesis chapter 3. The angels would have been eager. Oh, say the word, Jehovah. We stand here as your flaming spirits ready to serve you. We'll stop that, Satan. We will crush the enemy. We will destroy the snake. And Jehovah says, I give no word of command to stop that snake. I I will allow the sin to go. And Psalm 115, verses 1 to 3, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Listen to this, listen. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is their God? Look at this world, where is their God? Verse 3 of Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. When he said no to the angels, he was doing what made him happy. He could have stopped it. But suffering is certain because he allowed it. Suffering is absolutely controlled by God. Do you know the verse Amos 3 verse 6? In the old King James it says, Shall there be evil in a city and Jehovah has not done it? That means every evil or the NASB says calamity. I think the ESV says disaster in Amos 3 verse 6. Every disaster, everything that comes into a city, it's controlled by God. It is done. That's an active verb. God himself is the doer of that thing. What it means is that he's in absolute and complete control. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. And not for a moment has he abdicated the throne. Even though 1 John 5 verse 19 says... Satan is the ruler of this world and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It means there's a hierarchy. In a sense, God has allowed Satan to have some power over the world, but ultimately he sits on top and he allows Satan to have his foolish plans for this time because he's ultimately in control. And when the time is right, he will not be the far off distant dictator and controller of the world, but he will come down with an iron fist and rule the nations as we read in Psalm 110 in our creed this morning. Let me ask you, who sent the flood that killed millions of humans in Genesis chapter 7? Who hardened Pharaoh's heart so that not only Pharaoh, but all the firstborns and all of his military men would be destroyed? Who sent the Assyrians to capture Israel? Who sent the Babylonians a hundred years later to conquer Judah? Who raised up Rome to subjugate his own people? Who raised up the general Titus to come in and destroy in a terrible siege and travesty the city of Jerusalem? Was God's arm shortened when the Britons were all enslaved by the Romans 1,700 years ago? Was God's arm shortened? Was he not able to stop when Kenyans went inland to Uganda and enslaved black people, enslaving black people to sell to Muslims almost 1,000 years ago? Was God not in control when wicked people sponsored by the Catholic Church in the 1400s, the Pope gave official sanction only to Portugal acting as an arm of the Catholic Church to enslave Africans on the west coast by Ghana? 
200 years before Europe, before Reformed and Protestant Europe was allowed to enslave uh, Africans, it was the Catholic Church that gave exclusive authority to Portugal to do it. Was God not able to stop that pain and suffering when women and children were terribly separated? Where was God in the Anglo-Boer War when the Afrikaners were unjustly persecuted by the British? Where was God in the history of this country when Shaka Zulu performed Mfichani, the crushing of the Ndebele people, and two million, some historians say, two million blacks were destroyed by other blacks in the most barbaric ways. It's one thing to die today with a bullet. It's another thing to die with a sharpened piece of wood as they had to stab repeatedly for two million people. But oh, Mzili Kazi, the king of Ndebele, was only getting what he deserved at the hand of the Shaka because Mzili Kazi had constantly been killing the Shangans and the Swati and the Twana. And as he tried to rush north, he eventually got more of his own medicine because Mugabe, in the 1980s, killed 15,000 more in the northwest of Zimbabwe. Where was God at that time? And the answer, he was in heaven doing what he pleased. God has promised that in this world there will be a great degree of suffering. Where was God in the 1930s, 1932, when the second famine came on the Ukraine. It was covered up for 50 years by the Communist Party, the most wicked and godless ideology the world has ever seen, murdering more people than any other ideology that I can think of in history is communism. And where was God when, when the Russians came into Ukraine and destroyed by an organized famine 5 to 10 million people? We don't even know the number of people because there were so many that were destroyed in 1932. And the answer is God is controlling it all. But if he knew that it would come, and if he has all power, then it means he allowed it for his good purposes. Did you follow that sentence, or is the tone of my voice putting you to sleep? Let me change it up. If he knew that it would happen, number one, and if he is omnipotent, meaning he has all what? He has all power and he has all knowledge. If he knew it and he has the power in his own hand, then it means he allowed it. He could have stopped any one of those, but he allowed it. Why would he allow it? Let me give you the answer. Jesus says, you will weep. Why? Kids get this. This is the foundation of true Christianity. Because suffering puts us in our proper place. Our proper place is low, not high. Our proper place is weeping over our sins. Blessed are those who mourn. For they alone will be comforted. There's no other way to be happy unless you weep. There's no other way. Only suffering puts us where we must be. Only weeping. Only the pain in your family. Only the debt that is over your head and and goes through your brain every minute of the day. Only the tension with your mom and your dad. You wish I would... 
I don't even know what to do with that anymore. Only the fact that you live in the house with the woman and she just brings tension. Or the man, he beats me, he this. The child, he won't listen. The pain and the suffering, only that kind of life will put you where you need to be. And that is low before God. We have this idea that we are actually so strong and we're not. We have this idea that we're actually good people and we're not. You remember, I've told you this before. Was it Rabbi Kushner who wrote the book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? He's a Jewish rabbi. And in that book, what does he argue? He argues the options are bad things happen to good people because God didn't know about it or he didn't have the power to stop it. Or he didn't love the people. Maybe he knew it. Maybe he had the power, but he really hates people and he wants to see them suffer. Rabbi Kushner's answer is, he just didn't have the power. He knew about it and he loved them. He just couldn't, he just couldn't, didn't quite have the resources. Does that comfort you? Women, when your babies are hurt, does that comfort you to know, God really loves me and he knew about this. He just can't fix it. Really? That's what you're going to say? Friends, God knows about it and he has the power and he loves his people. But he lets that pain go on so that you'll go lower. You're not low enough yet. You still think well of yourself when you should remember 1 Samuel 24, 24. I'm a dog. I'm a dead dog. I'm a flea, David says to Saul, giving us an example. Or Abigail in the very next chapter when Abigail says, your handmaiden, David says, now that your husband is dead, will you come and be the queen? And she says, your servant, your little maid servant is here only fit to wash the feet of your servants. I can't even wash the feet of my Lord David. I have to wash the feet of his Servants, the people who wash his feet, I'll only wash their feet. Is that the way you feel about yourself? Suffering is meant to put you in that place. The reason he says in verse 20, you will weep, is because he's building us up and moving us to that place where we will properly understand what we deserve. What we deserve? That's it. Proverbs 15, verse 33, before honor is humility. Proverbs 18, verse 12, the same thing before honor is humility. James 4, verse 6, he resists the proud, but he gives grace to who? There's only one group of people who get any grace. At the final day, you're going to want grace, and he does not give it unless you get in this class of people. What's the class of people you have to be inside? You've got to be inside that humble group or else you miss it all. What could bring about that kind of condition in the human soul except suffering? Look and think to yourself today. What could bring it about? What could really make me low before God except suffering? Let's say you look up at these mountains. Could that make you feel low? Maybe a little. Have you ever stood at the ocean and looked over the ocean? and thought, this, this makes me feel very small. Maybe if you're a pilot and you fly and look at the heavens and think, I feel very small. Can that make you feel small? Yes, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't go as far. It doesn't go as far as suffering. It's like someone wants to build a mall over here, and you say, oh, I'll help. Do you need sand? Oh, yeah, we need lots of sand. And then you bring them a pocket full. They need truck after truck after truck of sand. 
You, you were so kind, you brought them a pocket. Oh, here's a spoon. Seeing the ocean, the mountain is good. It'll help you, it should. But it's not, it does not do what suffering can do. And, and notice this in verse 20. And I've got to move quickly here. So we've got two other verses to see. Look at verse 20. Suffering does something. What does it do in verse 20? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep, you will lament, but, but, contrast, but the world will be doing something else. You're going to be crying, but not everyone's crying. What are they doing? There's two groups of people here. There's a laughing, happy people, and there's a weeping, crying people. Two groups. Which group would you like to be in? You'd rather be in the laughing group, right? We all want to laugh. We all want to be laughing, don't we? But did you see the groups are distinguished based on their affections? The groups are different based on how they feel, based on their affections. That's the difference between, that's the, difference between the two groups. The difference between the sheep and the goats is their heart, their affections. Let me give you a brief history lesson. The ancient Greeks separated the affections, the feelings, the emotions. Follow me, follow me. We're talking now about the emotions. You with me? The ancient Greeks separated those two. They said there's two kinds of emotions that everyone has. Some emotions are natural, and they could be called animal or bodily emotions, like an appetite. So we might say your hunger. Do you choose to feel hungry? No, it just comes, right? Do you choose to feel sleepy? No, it just comes. So, uh, desire to eat, desire to sleep, desire for a man with his wife, those are just, they come naturally. Those would be the animal or the basic urges and desires. But they said, you know, we've got to somehow, there's other kinds of feelings. There's other kinds of feelings. There's, there's higher feelings. There's these feelings that when a mother loves her child, that's, that's natural too, but it's not the same as when a mother wants to sleep which I think those are the only two feelings a mother has when she has a new baby. She loves that baby and she wants to sleep. Now, there's a difference between those two. And so the Greek said this, let's call one the affections and let's call the other the passions. Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, said, let's give these two names. We'll call the, we'll call the passions. Are you with me on the use of the words? You follow me? Lost two categories. Over here we have passions or appetites or animal desires. And Friedrich Nietzsche said, we'll say those are Dionysian from the teacher Dionysius. Dionysian. This side is the Apollinarians from the teacher Apollinarius. Apollonian or Dionysian? Appetites or affections? Which one is it going to be? C.S. Lewis came along and said, let's call it this way. Let's say stomach or chest. Why, why am I telling you all this? There's a reason. Because it's in the Bible. I'm not here to teach you philosophy from the ancient Greeks. I'm here to teach you the Bible. Ever heard this? Proverbs 4, verse 23. Keep your heart with all diligence because of out of it are the issues of life. Keep what with all diligence? Okay, two of you heard me. I'm glad. Proverbs 4, verse 23. I'll quote the same verse. Keep your heart with all diligence because out of your heart come all of the issues of life. It's in the Bible. The heart is the seat of the affections. Love the Lord your God with all your 
It doesn't say love the Lord your God with all your stomach. But in Philippians 3 verse 19, it does say there are certain false teachers who pretend to be Christians. And what is their God? Can I remember? Whose end is destruction, whose God is their stomach or their belly. Yeah. Oh, there are people who follow their stomach, their animal appetites. They're Dionysians. These guys, they say, hey, when I want it, I get it. One life, live it. When an urge comes, I go for it. I've got something to do. I'm a man's man. This side says, when I have an urge, I follow it. I trust my feelings. I trust my gut. The other side says, wait a minute. We need to have a little wisdom here. We're Apollonian. We're affectionate. We're going to follow the chest or the heart. We know there's two different kinds of feelings in man. Jesus does the same thing here. He says, you disciples notice that you're distinguished from the world by your affections. What affection are the disciples having in verse 20? Does everyone see that? What's the affection in verse 20? John 16, verse 20. What's the affection? It's weeping. What's the affection of the world in verse 20? You see, the world and the, and the church are divided based on their affections, which is why you could divide someone based on whether they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're doing new members classes these days. I'll gladly take you as a new member if you understand and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's that simple. Can you stand up and say, in the past, I was like the world, rejoicing in the world, but something changed and I started to weep. I started to cry. I started to cry over my sin. I suffered because of my conscience. The Holy Spirit did his comforting work, his convicting work. He taught me and cut me. And then that cutting, I went low. And right now I have to stand in front of you and say, I am so embarrassed. I'm more than embarrassed. I'm humbled. Wow. We'll take you. If you don't have a PhD, we'll take you. If you don't, you say, well, I'm not a pastor. We'll take you. If you can say on those two affections, I've divided. I'm, I, mean, I used to be like the world. I used to be like the goats. I used to be driven by my gut. I used to follow my stomach. I used to say, I've got this urge to be seen and to be looked at. I've got this urge to be with a woman or a man. I've got this urge to eat. I've got this urge to drink. I've got these urges. I've got this kind of worldly joy. But something's changed. I don't, I'm not saying I'm perfect, and it's not all worked out yet, but I'll say this. I love what God loves. I've wept over my sin. That's all it takes, really. Do you want to be a member of this church? Let me summarize it right here. It's summarized in this. Have you wept over your sin? Have you been cut over your sin? And if so, if you've been cut over that sin, have you seen how low you are? Because that is the essence of saving faith. That's what it means. Do you want to know what it means to believe? Callie, my little girl, comes to me. She's sick this morning, but she comes to me often and says, Daddy, how do I know I believed? Colin, Friday night when we came back from youth in the village, Colin was sitting in the front because he was sick. He'd been sick Friday, Saturday, and today he's, he's again sick. Colin's with me on Friday night. It was, we're driving home. Everyone else is in the back of the buck. He was up front. 
And he's, he said, Dad, when you preached tonight in youth, it just cut me. And I thought I, thought I was a believer. But oh, what, what if I'm not a believer? What if I'm tricking myself? Dad, how can I know I really believe? Is that you? Is that you? Do you say, I want to believe on Jesus, but how can I know it? Then just let verse 20 be your teacher. You will weep. True Christians are ones who suffer because of their sin. And they're different from the joy of the world, the laughter of the world, that trite, flippant, ha ha ha, that kind of thing that happens. Follow this, follow this. I'm going to close with this point. I'll finish the message tonight. That kind of laughter that comes at this point. A 16-year-old girl who just has a new change of clothes and they're very fashionable, which probably means they're terribly immodest. And no Christian dad should ever let the dad, girl out of the house that way. But just with that assumption. Assuming that she's 16 and she has a new set of clothes that her dad did not check before she bought it. And she's now going to go to the mall 30 minutes away or an hour away, the big mall. that She doesn't live near it. She's going to go there with some of her friends. And how does she act when she goes to that mall? We have a word in English. It's called ditzy. Silly. Everything she does is so that more eyes would come to her. That's the, quote, joy of the world. You can put it in a boy. It acts a little bit differently, but it's the same impulse. It's the stomach. It's the gut. It's the Dionysian impulse. It's the urge. It's the appetite. But it hasn't really hit the head. That was the case of Anne Hasseltine Judson. When she was about 16 years old, she said she always loved to go to parties. She loved to dance. She was an American in the late 1700s. Until about 16 years old, she said, suddenly I was struck with the fact that I'm living a silly, pointless life just for fun and games and my own entertainment and my own amusement. And for months, Anne Hasseltine was thrown down in despair. And then she found Christ. And she became the wife, eventually, of Adoniram Judson, the greatest missionary to Burma. And today there are 500,000 Baptist Karen people who all date back to Ann Judson, who died as a missionary in her 30s, and she's converted about 16 years old. After what? She was on this side, following the appetites in the stomach and the gut, and then she wept, and she was converted. Brothers and sisters, God has a reason for our tears. Some of you have wept this week. God has a reason for those. He has not forgotten you. I want to give two more reasons, but I'll give those tonight. If this topic is important to you, then do not allow the fire to grow cold over the afternoon. Say to yourself, I'm going to stoke this fire and be back with God's people to study the word tonight. This is the Lord's day, remember, not the Lord's morning. This evening at 6, we'll try to finish this up and do verses 21 and 22. But maybe God has spoken to your heart right now. If so, come to him. Go and just accept the suffering, the pain, the difficulty that God's put in your life and say... I'm going to let this have its perfect work. James 1 verse 2. We're memorizing or reading James this month. James 1 verse 2. My brothers, count it joy when you fall into temptation and difficulty and hardship. Knowing this, when, you're, when your life goes through hardship, God is working out something good in you. Verse 12. When you endure that, he has a crown of life for you. And some of you, what you need to do is just publicly say, I have been a sinner. I have strayed from God, but God forgive me. If you'll take me, I want to be a church member here. Some of you need to go and fix the problem with relatives, family, or friends. 
But let us all change our attitudes and say, when God brings the weeping, I won't kick against it anymore. I'll bow like a lamb. Father, come and help us with your spirit. Because we are suffering and in pain and it is greater than we can bear. So help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.